Thanks. Uh, well, welcome everyone. Um, this is Richard Mala with the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, and welcome to our program today. Um, we are just about to get started. Actually, I guess we are getting started. I just wanted to mention this is our, I think, second or third time using Zoom. So um, it went pretty smoothly last time, but um, please forgive us if there's any um, any technical issues. Hopefully, they'll be will be okay. Uh, this program is being recorded. We have both a chat function and a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Uh, so we're going to leave some time at the end for us to respond to questions. So if you do have a question, please put it in the Q&A and not in the chat, because we're going to be monitoring the Q&A. Q so today's program is a focus on uh, a few important residents' rights the right to vote, which we really wanted to focus on, of course, now in September. Uh, people still have time to register to vote. They, they have time, of course, to do absentee ballots, etc. And then also the right to self-determination and right to equal access to quality care. Uh, I personally have been concerned about the, uh, so many rights have gone uh, unaddressed and so many needs have gone unaddressed during the COVID pandemic period and that it's really important for us to be uh, aware, knowledgeable, and advocating for our residents to ensure that they do receive the appropriate care and services that they need. Uh, there have been a lot of, of rules that have been relaxed during COVID-19, but not rules related to residents' rights and not rules related to quality of care, not any rules related to quality of care. So we see those problems, there's just no excuse. Um, and then lastly, before we move on, uh, this is our website at the bottom, nursinghome411.org. For those of you who are not familiar with us, we uh, have a lot of different information, resources, uh, and data available on nursing homes across the country on our website. Everything is free to use and share. So Eric, if you could please uh, move on. So a little bit about us, for those of you who aren't familiar, the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We're entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes and assisted living, adult care facilities. We conduct policy analysis and systems advocacy, both in our home state of New York, uh, my home state of New Jersey, and nationwide. Uh, and then we do a lot of education of consumers and families, of long-term care ombudsmen, and other stakeholders through programs such as this. We have a really fantastic new podcast series that's available on our website, as well as on Spotify, Google Play, et cetera. But we are working as hard as we can to get information and resources out to residents and families and ombudsmen and those who work with them. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity to take on individual cases. I just wanna mention that here. We, uh, we're a small organization, but we, um, we're really doing what we can to improve care and conditions for nursing home residents. We are also home to two local long-term care ombudsman programs in the Hudson Valley of New York, just north of New York City. Uh, joining me today is um, uh, Eric Goldwine. He's, you saw him before. He's LTCCC's Policy and Communications Director. And Eric joined us last year, and I am Richard Mollett, LTCCC's executive director, and I started with the coalition in 2002, and I've been the executive director since 2005. Next slide, please. 
So very quickly, today's agenda, uh, Eric is gonna provide us with some updates on COVID-19 data and policy developments. We've been doing this every month, so do, do check in with us. Um, he provides some really good information on what is going on uh, out there and both out there in terms of policy developments and in there in terms of you know, what are we hearing, what do we know is going on in facilities based upon the data that they're reporting. Uh, and he also lets you know where that data can be accessed uh, if you're interested as well. And then we're gonna focus on residents' rights, as I mentioned before, particularly at this point, voting rights, information and resources. And then we're also gonna to touch upon a couple of other important residents' rights. Uh, and then we'll end with some resources for advocacy that you can use now, as well as leave some time for Q&A. Next slide, please. And I think this is, I'm gonna hand it over to Eric. Uh, yeah, so thanks, thanks Richard for the intro. Hopefully everybody can, can hear me. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me, Richard. There we go. Uh, so I'm gonna first start by just giving a few updates on uh, COVID-19 long-term care data and policy developments, uh, starting with the data, uh, then uh, discussing visitation policy, uh, then uh, reviewing a recent announcement about testing, uh, fat, rapid testing in long-term care settings and the issues surrounding that. So first, uh, you might be familiar with a version of this slide as I've presented before. I'm gonna go over the cases and uh, fatality and the data that is available uh, both at the federal and at the state, or specifically New York State level. Uh, there's an excellent uh, resource on Kaiser Family Foundation, which, which uh, provides a lot of these numbers. Now on the top right, as I've mentioned before, these data are data. They uh, don't tell the full story. There's also issues with data entry. There's issues with underreporting, overreporting, and they only capture what they are. Uh, they don't capture the full story. For instance, isolation, abuse, neglect, um, the the uh, impact of lack of visitation and isolation. So with that said, I'm gonna review a few numbers. According to Kaiser Family Foundation's September 4th data, there are or have been 468,000 COVID-19 cases among resident and staff in over 18,000 long-term care facilities in the United States. Uh, their total fatalities, COVID-19 fatalities, is 76,000, which is about a, a 10,000 increase from where we were a month ago. Um, so it's important to note that the U.S. has a lot of different, it has a lot of variation as far as where these cases are happening. Um, if you look at New York's data, uh, in New York, fatalities have plateaued. Uh, there was a, a large, a rapid increase in March, April, May, and as you see in the graph on the bottom right corner, uh, there has been a plateau in the number of fatalities and the number of cases. And another uh, important important data point to note is that the cases and fatalities are also being tracked by uh, at the federal level and their data does not align with what we're seeing elsewhere. They have a 300 
45,000 cases. And again, Kaiser Family Foundation had significantly more at 470,000. And the same trend occurs with fatalities. So I know a lot of you are interested in visitation policy and guidelines. And I will just was thinking about it earlier this morning, uh, how long it's been. It's been 186 days since the initial lockdown in mid-March. And just to put that in perspective, we've gone through Easter, Passover, Ramadan, uh, Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day, birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, funerals. It's been such a long time. It's been over six months. And I know that can be hard on residents and families. And it has real uh, physical and psychological health effects. uh, And it takes a, a big toll. Um, as far as current policy, the uh, as you are as many of you are aware, the current CS- CMS reopening recommendations are 28 or a facility should have 28 days without new cases, uh, without or and there should not be staff shortages. Uh, there must be sufficient PPE and testing, and there are exceptions on compassionate care and that's not just end of life there are other circumstances in which uh, visitation cms is recommend reopening recommendations or visitation recommendations allow for compassionate care visitation now in new york there was a recent policy change that um, has limited visitation in pediatric nursing homes and adult care facilities. And the main change there is rather than 28 days, um, as you see a full moon cycle, um, it is down to 14 days, which is um, something we see as an improvement. However, this is a policy change that we would like to see or not necessarily this policy change, but we would like to see less restricted visitation, not just in pediatric nursing homes and not just adult care facilities in all nursing homes. And just a few of uh, our resources and recommendations as far as uh, visitation policy. Uh, the We signed on and were involved in uh, recommendations that um, allowed for outdoor uh, and indoor visits for all residents. And uh, our feeling is that uh, outdoor, if outdoor is not possible, then uh, residents should be allowed indoor, whether that's uh, health-related reasons or weather-related reasons. Um, another aspect of this recommendation is that uh, residents, families, ombudsmen should be informed about visitation policies, uh, any visitors should be uh, screened before the visit, and all residents should have access to visitors. Uh, Now, I would also, and this is available on our website at this link um, at the left side of this page, I'd also recommend uh, looking at Canner's Visitation Saves Lives campaign. You can log on to visitationsaveslives.com to look at their recommendations and also to share your story on Facebook, on Twitter, on social media about why visitation matters to you. And also uh, 
back a few months ago, LTCCC published our blueprint, blueprint for restoring visitation rights. Uh, and we uh, recommend that every resident has the right to a, a support a visitor in person and that there should be safe and reasonable accommodations. And a last uh, policy note before we get into the residence rights portion of the presentation is that uh, uh, last week, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services announced they would be providing 750,000 COVID-19 point of care tests. These are fast antigen tests, which would be free for facilities and would target counties designated as red or yellow, which means that they have higher risks and higher, uh, yeah, higher risks of COVID transmission. Now, this on its surface is better than nothing, but we're very concerned that there still lacks a long-term plan. Uh, 750,000 sounds like a lot of tests, but with the amount of tests that are needed, that is not going to last forever. And we're just concerned about what's next. So now it's, we're, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so now we're gonna discuss a uh, resonance rights. And Richard, you actually wanna take this slide here? Sure, sure. Uh, so thanks, Eric, that was really helpful. I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Um, maybe that stopped. Uh, no, I'm not hearing right now. Okay, good. Um, so I just wanted to mention before we move on to this slide in terms of the testing that CMS held a, that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services held a, uh, a call for the industry last week and they announced in addition to testing that they had provided about $5 billion um, to the industry to help pay for testing, to help assure that staff uh, could be, you know, in the facility, sufficient staffing, and also staffing that wasn't, uh, you know, that was paid, uh, hopefully, to, uh, you know, to come into the nursing home during these stressful times, uh, et cetera, and to, you know, ensure that, again, you know, the staff was really supported. So it's just important to, to know that the facility, the industry has been getting a lot of money and a lot of resources. That's just one of um, a lot of different funding that they got, that it's so important that that funding be directed not to, you know, increasing profits, but it's funding at this critical time to meet the critical need of residents. So now moving on here, and you know, the meat of the uh, of the program, of course, you know, the COVID-19 updates are are extremely important. But I've been really concerned about what uh, I've been hearing for many many months now. Uh, in New York and New Jersey and, and, and nationwide, actually, about uh, reports of, of serious neglect of residents not being cared for. Part of that is, and it gets to the concern, you know, that we've had from the very beginning about family members, long-term care ombudsmen not being allowed to go into facilities. As Eric was saying, it's starting to um, loosen up a bit, but it's still way, way, way too strict. I hear from so many family members, and thank you for getting in touch with us. Um, you know, it's, it's hor horrifying and heartbreaking to hear uh, what residents are experiencing. Um, so we're concerned about the visitation, as Eric was saying, but what I wanted to mention here is that we're really concerned also about the neglect that's going on without having eyes in the facility, without having regular inspections, which we didn't have for a very long time, that um, 
residents are deteriorating. Residents are uh, both suffering from lack of care, they're suffering from neglect, and they're suffering from, uh, from isolation. Uh, and we have heard reports of residents literally dying because of lack of contact with loved ones, with families, um, social isolation, et cetera. So what we wanted to do is start talking about, you know, let's, let's start talking about these residents' rights that exist, that are ongoing now, which um, we have a right to expect from facilities. And we're starting really at the very beginning in terms of residents' rights. This, uh, you can see the actual number one is, I clipped this from our primer. We have a primer, as you can see on the left-hand side here, Nursing Home Quality Standards, a primer for residents, families, ombudsmen, and advocates. And we have um, a nice description, I think, of kind of the lay of the land for nursing homes and for residents and who provides oversight, et cetera. But the heart of the primer is on what are some of the uh, essential quality standards that we have identified over the years and what do they mean for residents. So this is the number one. It really gets to the general residents' rights. And I'll just talk about a little bit. Everything in italics in the primer and everything here is in italics comes directly either from the federal regulations or the federal guidelines for how those, how those regs are expected to be implemented. So here the resident A, the resident has a right to a dignified existence self-determination and communication with and access to persons and services inside and outside of the facility. The facility must treat each resident with respect and dignity and care for each resident in a manner and in an environment that promotes maintenance or enhancement of his or her quality of life, recognizing again each resident's individuality. The facility must protect and promote the rights of the residents. So this is a general layout of what is expected. And all the individual rules and requirements that follow go to implementing that. They all speak to that. And you know, we've done a lot of work in this area over the years and, uh, and worked a lot with the guidance, uh, with, excuse me, with CMS on the guidance for these rules. And I can tell you that every single rule really gets back to how are we um, recognizing the individuality of residents and how are we meeting his or her needs in the way that is most likely to facilitate his or her dignity, his or her ability to live um, a comfortable and as full a life as possible in the facility. Um, a couple of things I want to mention because they really relate to the voting that Eric will talk about in more detail, but the resident has the right to exercise his or her rights as a resident of the facility and as a citizen or resident of the United States. And I have to tell this to people all the time and sometimes even remind myself because it's so different from what residents and their loved ones experience in, in many nursing homes. That so many nursing homes are, uh, you know, they, you go into a nursing home and it's like you're no longer a citizen of the United States and that's just not true. And here you could see it in writing. So we're gonna, I'm not going to go through these all right now, but you can see they're here, and I'll talk about them a little bit, a little bit more specifics later on. And we're going to be focusing on, I think, some of these residents' rights during the pandemic, especially in our next few monthly programs, to again kind of plug in. The last thing I will, before moving on, I just want to mention um, the last paragraph here: the resident has the right to choose his or her attending physician. So many family members, so many ombudsmen that I speak to over the years, even facilities don't seem to realize or don't 
choose to realize or recognize that the resident has the right to choose his or her own doctor and the facility cannot put up a blockade or, or roadblocks to uh, ensure that he or she is able to, um, to, to choose a physician. So it has to be someone that the facility is, of course, willing to let into the facility, et cetera, but they cannot make that too onerous. Um, that again, the resident is an individual. The facility is not a storage unit for oranges or, or, or cargo or, um, or magazines or whatever. It is a home for people. Nursing homes are paid and expected to be meeting standards of care and quality of life for every single resident. Uh, and next slide, please, I'm sorry. So I think that was just kind of what I, the lay of the land that I wanted to provide at the beginning. And I'm gonna hand it over to Eric now to talk about voting rights. Thanks, Richard. Uh, so I'm gonna spend the next uh, 10 to 15 or so minutes talking about residents' rights to voting as, as we're all well aware, where uh, less than two months away uh, from the 2020 uh, election and mail-in ballot deadlines, registration, all of that is well before the election day itself. So I'm going to talk about voting rights in long-term care settings. And I want to start by just talking about who are the long-term care voters. So uh, this slide is about a man named Walter Hutchins. He's the feature of a ProPublica article, which I recommend checking out. Uh, the link is on the bottom. But Walter Hutchins is, is a, he's a nursing home resident. He's an industrial engineer, an inventor. He helped design the M16, and he uh, resides at a nursing home in North Car Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, he has voted in 68 consecutive years. His vo first vote was for Dwight Eisenhower. Here's a picture on our right, um, just to give you an idea of how important voting is to Walter. Uh, he's voted in fire stations. He has voted in churches, uh, retirement community, communities, uh, but he needs help voting. He's blind. He's hard of hearing. And usually in past elections, he has had assistance uh, from his family. Uh, however, COVID-19 is going to put his voting streak in jeopardy. Uh, state law uh, in North Carolina prohibits staff from helping with ballots. And due to visitation restrictions, uh, visitors might not be able to help him in person. Um, so that means his wife, Margaret, his four kids, his eight grandchildren are not able to help. Um, and here's a quote from Margaret, his wife. It makes me angry that something like this could happen and that we'd been, be denied the right to vote just because of our age and condition. And here's another, uh, another example I saw on Twitter yesterday. Uh, Dr. Bob Watcher, he is, a, um, he is a physician at a California, um, in California, and he tweeted, Visiting my 90-year-old dad, who is sadly nearing the end, an 84-year-old mom, and and uh, he, he dad is pretty clear-eyed about his future and says he's ready to go, but he has one thing that he is still wants to accomplish. I want to stay alive long enough to vote. So this is a fundamental uh, issue um, for 
nursing home residents uh, like like this 90-year-old man in Lake Walter. So there are 2.2 million residents in nursing homes or residential care. Uh, as noted before, voting is a fundamental part of their identity. Uh, older adults uh, are often referred to as the backbone of American elections. They're more likely to vote than um, the younger age group. Um, and it's this election is especially important for the nursing home and long-term care population because this is the population most impacted by COVID-19 policy. And just to get this out of the way, this is a nonpartisan issue. Um, if you look at the 2016 breakdown, uh, older adults, we don't have specific long-term care voting breakdowns, but uh, older adults 65 plus were more likely to vote for Trump than Clinton in the 2016 election. Uh, but no matter the breakdown of how this is, we are, we find this to be an essential right uh, for this upcoming election. So the voting rights of long-term care residents, as uh, this, as Richard mentioned in a few slides ago, uh, federal rules for nursing home protect residents' rights, including voting rights. Um, so you can see here, the resident has the right to exercise their rights as a resident of the facility and as a citizen or resident of the United States. The facility must ensure that the resident can exercise his or her rights her rights without interference, coercion, discrimination, or reprisal from the facility. And the resident has the right to be free of interference, coercion, discrimination, reprisal from the facility in exercising his or her rights and to be supported by the facility in the exercise of his or her rights as required under this subpart. Uh, now, uh, I am not a I have not been studying this issue for all that long. However, I want to uh, kind of give the Florida Nina Cohn, I'll, I'm gonna play a clip from her. She is an elder law expert who has been writing about, specifically about long-term care voting policies for more than a decade. Um, I think, yeah, for longer than a decade. And what she told me is the right to vote is a fundamental right and living in long-term care does not undermine that. And I'm going to play this clip. It's going to be, it's from our nursing home 411 podcast. So I want to start with the basics. Uh, what are the voting rights for long-term care residents and how do or don't they differ from that of other U.S. citizens? So residents of long-term care facilities have all the voting rights that they would have if they were not residents of long-term care facilities. The right to vote is a fundamental right, and living in long-term care does not undermine it. Uh, but actually, residents of nursing homes that take either Medicaid or Medicare funds, which is almost all nursing homes, actually have some additional rights. Under the Federal Resident Bill of Rights, residents have the right to be supported by the facility in exercising their rights as citizens of the United States. So nursing home residents living in facilities that take federal money have the right to have those facilities help them uh, with voting, to support their voting. 
Okay. So yeah, if you, if you don't believe me, let's believe our, our scholar and expert, uh, Nina Cohn. Okay. So barriers to disability and, uh, or barriers to voting include disability and environment. Now, uh, cognitive impairment is a complicated issue when it comes to voting, but it does not necessarily preclude residents from voting and these laws and regulations vary state to state. I want to uh, quote an article from the American Bar Association. People whose mental capacities are clearly intact may vote for candidates based on any whim or reason, ration, rational, rational or irrational, profound or frivolous. Um, so I think that uh, conveys what the rights of voters are. Uh, there's also physical disability, which can get in the way of voting, such as uh, reading about or filling out the form, and residents are entitled to assistance uh, if they are disabled um, in filling out their ballot or registering or completing their vote. And there's also access to information or perhaps limited access to information which might uh, get in the way of a, re a resident understanding a uh, deadline for registration, the date of the vote, and the facilities have a responsibility to convey this information to residents under their care. Now, COVID-19 is a perfect storm um, for, uh, for this, for, preventing and blocking vote, voting from long-term care residents. This is an already marginalized group. In previous elections, there are reports that they've uh, lost their opportunity to vote or have been unable to get help casting a ballot. And worse, uh, not only are these violations underreported, but they're categorized as low severity or little to no harm when we know that robbing residents of this essential right is harmful. Uh, the ProPublica article I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, noted that hundreds of thousands of nursing home residents may not be able to vote in November because of the pandemic. And this is because of restrictions on visitation, uh, lack of access to ombudsman, suspended programs for election officials to enter the facility, and a lack of oversight. And uh, what Nina mentioned to me is we're headed for a perfect storm unless there is a quick correction. And with that in mind, there are things that we can do, you and I, ombudsmen, caregivers, to facilitate voting in this uniquely uh, challenging environment. Um, so I'm going to plug our new Nursing Home 411 voting page, which includes some of these resources, and I'm just going to highlight a few of my favorites. And again, you can get this information at nursinghome411.org slash voting. So vote.org, that's vote.org, is a tremendous resource that can give you information on registration and voting, whether in person or by mail for every U.S. state. So as an example, uh, if you went to vote.org, you could find a link to New York's election page, and you would be directed to 
a screen similar to what you see on the right where you can check your registration, you can register to vote, um, you can be pointed to uh, directions on voting by mail, and you can get election reminders. This is my personal uh, favorite resource on the Washington Post. They have a how to vote web page. Um, and this is for every US state. Uh, here we show our options on New York uh, where you can click, are you registered to vote? How do you plan to vote? And it will direct you to the deadlines, um, whether you're registered, whether you're not registered, whether you want to vote by mail or whether you want to vote in person. And again, this is every US state and there is additional information provided. And the National Consumer Voice has several voting fact sheets, including one that is how to cast a vote, uh, alternatives to traditional voting for consumers of long-term care, uh, absentee voting, early voting, voting in facility. And they also have a, a tremendous fact sheet on cognitive impairment and voting. Uh, they call it a complicated issue. And that's a, an assessment I agree with. Uh, the uh, regulations and restrictions vary across states, and there are both legal restrictions and practical barriers, and you can access that fact sheet on the link on the bottom right. Okay, and I'm going to pass it off to Richard. Thanks, Eric. That was really informative. And again, just to reiterate, um, it's up on our website. It's free to use, free to share. We really welcome you to share any of these resources, but especially now, um, you know, if people want to vote or are concerned about voting, now is the time as quickly as possible to move to um, make sure that happens, both for those of us living in the outer community and for individuals living in nursing homes and other adult care uh, facilities. So I'm gonna talk uh, about a few of the resident rights that I mentioned earlier, a little more detail. Um, the first one is self-determination. Next slide, please, Eric. Thanks. So I included here the front page of our two-page fact sheet. Uh, as many of you know, if you're familiar with our work and, and these webinars, we, um, we've developed these fact sheets over the last several years. They have been updated for the new regs. And each of the fact, sheet, fact sheets essentially takes one of the topics from the primer that I had mentioned earlier that has um, a lot of different issues, and it boils it down into a Almost all of them are, are a two-page right, a front and back. So people can use these to advocate for themselves, to know their rights, to know their loved one's rights, to uh, use as a family or as a resident council uh, for ombudsman trainings uh, and, and for other volunteer trainings, et cetera. So this one is, and it talks about some of the things that I spoke about earlier, um, the fundamentals of resident rights, dignity and respect, I wanna know, and I neglected to do this earlier, as you can see in purple, these are the headings of the different um, subsections of the code or the different topics. The first one, standard one, is resident rights. The second one is exercise of rights. And then the last, um, the last uh, purple heading is intent of this regulation, and that is taken from the guidance. So but I just want to mention, I hope that you can see here all of our uh, fact sheets and the primer as well include two things you'll see on the right-hand side in the purple bold. One is a number 42 CFR 
Uh, this one's 43.10A. Uh, that number, the 42 CFR number that you'll see accompanying every single standard and all the work that we do uh, goes back to the, or brings you back to the code of the US federal regulations. And that's really important because I want people to know when I talk to family members about this, when I do trainings, when you take these materials, that it's just not my opinion. It's not something that I made up. It's easily verifiable uh, just by plugging in 42 CFR 43.10 into uh, your internet browser and you could get the exact information. So if a uh, administrator or, or director of nursing says, well, what makes you think you have that right? You know that, again, it's just not me. You know, it's not just Richard Mollett from Long-Term Care Community Coalition or Eric Goldwine from Long-Term Care Community Coalition told you that, that these rights actually exist. Secondly, and we include this also with all these materials, you'll see there's a second number, it's called an F number, F tag actually. And it's F, this one is F-5. 50. The, we include these, these are called the F tags, and those are the tags that are used by the state surveyors, the state, <clears throat> excuse me, Department of Health or Department of Public Health. When they come in and when they do a survey, an inspection of a facility, if they find that there's a violation of one of the standards, that violation has, uh, is a, has an F tag that is associated with it, or the standard, excuse me, has an F tag that is associated with it. Why do I include this here and why do I think it's important? Um, if you are involved in a facility, if you live in one, if your loved one lives in one, if you're advocating in one, you have the right to see their, um, their most recent citations. It's called a statement of deficiencies. Uh, that statement of deficiencies also has to be on your state website and it's on the federal website, uh, Nursing Home Compare. It's medicare.gov forward slash nursing home compare. And when you look at the deficiencies for any facility, again, you can see this um, visiting the facility or on, your, on the state or federal websites, you can see exactly what they were cited for. And on the state websites and in, the, um, in person in the facility, what you'll generally see is it has on one side, it'll have what the citation was, the F tag number, and what it was, it'll be written out what the facility did or did not do that resulted in that in that citation, but on the right-hand side, it'll, it'll show the plan of correction, what the facility is going to do to, to one, correct the problem, and to make sure that that problem does not happen again. So this, in short, this F tag is really important, really valuable, because if you're working in a facility, you can see what they were cited for, and you could use this to support your advocacy to make sure that that um, problem does not reappear, that that problem is addressed in a meaningful way. So that could be really useful for family councils and resident councils and for anyone, including, of course, ombudsman who is working or working to advocate for better care in the facility. One of the biggest problems we see and why I think, you know, many of us are here is because we know that nursing homes, unfortunately, have not all of them, but, but most of them have persistent problems. The average nursing home has like seven or eight um, healthcare violations that are identified every single year. And who knows how many more that are unidentified. But even of perhaps of greater concern to me at least is that the federal data have shown that many facilities have what we call chronic deficiencies so that they have the same violation or violation for the same care standard over and over and over again. 
And um, we did some work with um, Voices for Quality Care and other organizations uh, around the country. Several years ago, we actually hired somebody to go through all these violations, the whole database, and identify facilities that had three or more violations for the same regulatory standard um, in the three-year period on the nursing home compare database. And we found that a whopping 42%, according to federal data, of nursing homes have these chronic deficiencies, the same violation over and over and over again, meaning that they just were not doing a good job in correcting it. Um, so there's, we have some reporting on that actually on our website. We have not updated that recently uh, because the, the system, the number system changed, the enforcement system changed a bit uh, with the new regulations that came out in 2016, new survey guidance that came out in 2017. I don't wanna get into too much into the weeds here, but this information again, just to come back, can be really helpful for those of us who are working to address some of these persistent issues, whether on an individual facility level or um, more, more globally. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so next I want to talk about some of the residents' rights to quality care. Next slide, please. So number one, and this is not our piece, this is actually from uh, Justice and Aging. It's another organization uh, based in, I think, in California, but they also have a DC office. And Eric Carlson, who has been a, uh, a longtime advocate for nursing home residents and for, on uh, I think, Medicare and Medicaid issues. And he has this excellent book. It's actually, you can see, hopefully on the lower right-hand side, Justice and Aging, and their website is justiceandaging.org. This is a free book. Uh, it's called 20 Common Nursing Home Problems and How to Resolve Them by Eric Carlson. It's a great book. It's available for free now as a PDF. I actually purchased the hard copy when I first started and before all these things became more widely available. But in any case, I highly recommend it. This is problem number one, which I wanted to raise with you all. It's an issue we see over and over again. It's in regard to discrimination um, with care and with quality of services by nursing homes in respect to the source of a resident's payment. Uh, so as many of you probably know, uh, you know, nursing homes are paid, uh, most nursing home care, excuse me, is paid for through Medicaid, which pays for long-term care. And then I think it's about 20% roughly of nursing home care is paid for through Medicare, which pays for short-term rehab. And then the rest is either private insurance or, or out of pocket. Um, Medicaid pays on average about $225 per resident per day, substantial amounts of money. However, Medicare pays oftentimes many times more, could be four, five, six, even seven or $800 per day for residents care. And part of that, I would say there's really two reasons for that. One is we kind of discriminate against lower income people in this country. So Medicaid is, is not seen as valuable a program as Medicare is, but also for the Medicare resident, that, in, that higher cost is also supposed to include therapy services, because someone is in there for rehab, which is what Medicare again pays for, they are in need of more therapy services, generally speaking, than someone who is in a facility on, make, uh, on Medicaid, excuse me, which pays for long-term uh, custodial care. So, however, the point here is that facilities cannot discriminate in terms of uh, services and level of services or quality of services 
that they provide to a resident. So it is completely inappropriate and, and contrary to the federal rules for facility to say, well, you, um, you're no longer eligible to receive certain services because you're a Medicaid resident now, your Medicare has run out. That, that's not right. But unfortunately, that's something we see. We see a lot of discrimination against residents with Medicaid because facilities want to go after and want to focus on those people who are bringing in a much bigger profits. Um, so, you know, there, there is, you know, profit making, you know, frankly, in the industry across the board, uh, that's certainly something we could touch on uh, further, something, you know, in, a, in another program. But suffice to say here is that a nursing home is obviously making a lot more money from someone who, for whom they're being paid, say, $600 a day, as opposed to someone for whom they're being paid $225 a day. Uh, however, again, you are a medical service provider. I, as I tell people, uh, when I talk to people in Washington, D.C., or, or in one of our state capitals about this, um, we all have things in our lives that are easier and things in our lives that are harder. That's part of life. That's part of our work lives as well. And um, no one gets to say, no one in other settings gets to say, oh, I, don't, I only want to do the easy work. I don't want to do the hard work. Um, you have a mix of things in your life. And, and nursing, home, nursing homes that agree to take in residents and, and agree to provide safety and care and to meet the federal rules in doing so have an obligation to, in essence, you know, take the mix of the residents. And the federal rules uh, really get at that. And this is, a, again, a great piece to just help, um, help people advocate uh, for that specifically. Next slide, please. Great, thanks, Eric. Um, so this is our fact sheet on resident care and well-being. And again, this is the fact, the slides I believe are on the website. I think Sarah posted the link already. And the fact sheets themselves are on our website. Easy to search. So here, this fact sheet is on resident care and well-being. If you um, go, we have a section or subsection on uh, on fact sheets. It's part of our learning center on the website. Everything is free to use and share and download. Uh, we're really happy if it's useful to others. But this this um, fact sheet focuses on um, quality of, of care. Uh, so we look here at vision and hearing to ensure that residents receive proper treatment and assistive devices to maintain vision and hearing abilities. The facility must, if necessary, assist the resident in making appointments by arranging for transportation to and from the office of a practitioner specializing in the treatment of vision or hearing impairment or the office of, of a professional, excuse me, in the provision of vision or hearing assistive devices. Um, vision and hearing. The next um, bullet point we have is skin integrity. Pressure ulcers, a huge, huge issue for nursing home residents. About um, uh, roughly, I think it's seven or 8% of nursing home residents have pressure ulcers or, or even have been identified as having pressure ulcers. It's likely that many more in fact do, and it's just not identified or it's identified too late. Uh, this is a huge issue and a persistent issue for residents and a key indicator, frankly, of a nursing home's quality. The rule requires, the federal law requires a that a resident receive care consistent with professional standards of practice to prevent pressure ulcers and ensure that they do not develop pressure ulcers unless the individual's clinical condition, condition excuse me, demonstrates that they were unavoidable and that a resident with pressure ulcers must receive necessary treatment and services consistent with professional standards of practice 
to promote healing, prevent infection, and prevent new ulcers from developing. So important because this is one of my biggest concerns and fears at this time, that residents, they're not being um, given as many activities, if any activities, as they have prior to COVID-19. They, uh, the facilities too often, from what we hear, are not undertaking other activities. So yes, maybe socialization is, is not safe. Maybe group activities may not be safe close together, but good facilities are, are doing other things. They're doing you know, cherubics in the hallways. So people are separate from each other, say six feet apart, but they're able to have movement. They're able to be engaged mentally as well as physically. Um, that facilities have appropriate staffing. That's where they promise, that's where they're paid to have, to ensure that residents are monitored and repositioned to avoid pressure ulcers. So this is, is just so, so important because they are, for the most part, very easily avoidable and treatable if they do start out, uh, if a resident is properly monitored and receiving appropriate care. And again, those rules are still in place. And then lastly, I just wanted to touch on incontinence, it's on the upper right-hand side. It's another big issue that is, I think, an often a frequent problem and an frequently unnecessary problem in nursing homes. The facility must ensure that a resident who is continent of bladder and bowel on admission receives services and assistance to maintain continence unless his or her clinical condition is or becomes such that continence is not possible to maintain. This is a really high bar if it was properly uh, implemented and if it was properly enforced by both the states and CMS. What this says in essence is that someone should not be put into a diaper for the convenience of staff. And that's what we hear time and time and time and time and time again, uh, even before COVID-19 and now even more so, I'm just hearing heartbreaking stories about things like this where residents have lost continents, they have been put into a diaper, they've been put into a double diaper because no one's coming to take care of them for, for maybe another day, maybe two shifts or more and that's, and that's it. That is completely unacceptable. Nursing homes, again, they haven't taken a cut and pay. As I mentioned earlier, they're getting increased money, but they've still gotten paid every day to provide appropriate staffing and services. And if they can't do that, they need to not accept more residents until they have the staff and the ability to do that, period. Um, just like I mentioned before, with all of us with work, we don't, we don't take on work that we have, have to, can't do or have no intention of doing without knowing that we can face repercussions. And from our perspective, it is a long past time that nursing homes, the nursing homes that are failing to do this, that they face repercussions. Because frankly, you know, there are good nursing homes out there, as I mentioned before, but it makes it even harder for them because, they're, um, because they spend more on care and that makes it less viable as a business compared to those who are getting away without having any enforcement, any, any penalties, and they're not providing that level of care. So we provide this information again, these are fact sheets that are freely available to, to use and to share to support advocacy. And that advocacy could take a number of different forms. I just want to quickly mention before we move on, it could be, as you see here, we have a, a checklist, maintaining physical and emotional well-being checklist for, for people. And we have a lot of tools now that we've developed since this, <clears throat> excuse me, since the fact sheet to help people track issues and to help address them with them, uh, for themselves 
or with their loved one or with their resident. And so one thing that you can do is that you could use these fact sheets to, to, to facilitate getting the care you need or the care your loved one needs in the facility by alerting care staff, by alerting nursing staff that look, this is what your rights are. How can they help you achieve those rights? Um, so that's number one. That's always the best place to start is to try to engage people on, on these rights. But then secondly is that if you're not being heard, if you're not being responded to, uh, things are getting worse. If you have growing pressure ulcers or you have someone who's not getting a help with, with hearing assistance and a hearing aid for you know, a long period of time, is that you can take this up to you know, management. You could take this up to your state or, or federal legislature. Uh, you could take it up to your state uh, Department of Health and say, look, I know I have the rights here. This is just not my personal complaint. Um, it is my personal complaint, but it's also a personal complaint that is based on the law and on the rules. Uh, next slide, please. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the resources we have. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a Family and Ombudsman Resource Center and that has, uh, well, on the upper left-hand side here, you can see we have the Learning Center. The, the left-hand side, we're actually in the midst of changing this. So it's going to be, instead of drop-down menu, but you get the picture, is we have the, the Learning Center. We have Nursing Information and Data. We have Action, um, an Action Center. We have information about our organization. But we try to make it as easy as possible to access this, uh, any information, any resources. So at the bottom on the left-hand side, there's that search function, the little, little um, uh, eyeglass. Uh, but then you can also click on the Learning Center to see some of these resources. Or here on the Family and Amazon Resource Center, you can see the first, um, on the first column of boxes, of buttons, is fact sheets on care standards and resident rights, all the things I'm talking about. The Dementia Care Advocacy Toolkit. On the right-hand side, you can see forms and tools for resident-centered advocacy upcoming webinar programs, past webinar programs. So you can see and use these tools, hopefully as easily as possible. Next slide, please. These are just so quickly some of the forms and tools for resident-centered advocacy. We had them both as Word files and PDF files so that hopefully they could be useful to you if you wanna print them out or if you want to fill them in on your computer or on an iPad or other tablet or on your phone. Next slide, please. And this is just very quickly a resident preferences form. So you can kind of see what some of these forms look like. And again, they could be printed out. They could be used. You could take them with you to care planning meetings. Um, you can use them or share them. Now, of course, we're all meeting remotely, um, you know, electronically. They could be kept in electronic form as a PDF or as a Word document, or they can be, of course, scanned if you filled them out by hand. Next slide, please. Um, this is another record keeping form. Next slide, please. And then our, uh, this is our Citizen Action Center. So we have action alerts both for our home state of New York, as well as national action alerts on issues related to uh, staffing, related to safeguards and assisted living. Uh, we have tell, my, tell Your Story, which we ask people to share their story with us because that helps support um, our advocacy on behalf of residents uh, across the country. So, and, and thank you for those of you who have shared. It's very valuable. Uh, lastly, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, for more information, please email info at ltccc.org or call our main line 
to receive alerts for future programs or to sign up. Our next program will be October 20th. We will again do an update on what's going on. Hopefully we'll have more information and on visitation, which I know is an issue everyone is concerned about. We're hoping there'll be some changes by then. And we're gonna continue talking about some specific resident rights that we think um, can be useful and supportive of resident advocacy in you know, the months, um, you know, weeks, months, et cetera, to come. Next slide, please. Thanks, so with that, we're gonna open it up for um, questions and comments. Again, I'm, I apologize, we cannot uh, help people with individual problems. We don't take cases, for instance, or provide legal advice, but we do uh, appreciate uh, you know, hearing your stories and we do hope that the information and the tools are useful. If you're a long-term care ombudsman and if your supervisor uh, will allow you to take credit or have credit for attending this program, please take a quick survey. You, you can see the link below, surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1. And with that, I'll open up for questions. We can stay a few minutes longer too if uh, people are interested for the Q&A. Sarah? Thank you, Eric and Richard. So the first bunch of questions are about voting. Um, if, how do you help residents through the voting process without appearing to be pushing them in either direction? If there's a guardian and the facility, which one is responsible for arranging for the resident to vote? And if the resident doesn't have computer access what do those residents do? Eric, I'll leave it up to you, or I, I, I could, I guess we should probably take them just a little bit more slowly, sorry. Um, so the, okay. in terms of help, helping residents without appearing to push them in one direction, I mean, I think that's, that's true with anything. Uh, you know, just like I was saying before about residents' rights is that the resident um, has the right to be met where he or she is living, where, where his or her needs are, where, where his or her goals are, et cetera. That's not saying, determining, oh, I think this is what's best for you, or I think this is what you will like, but um, you know, being pr provided, if possible, with resources or information if the, you know, that the resident can understand, whether that be um, you know, TV or magazines or whatever. Uh, but in any case, it's really it just, um, there's, from my perspective at least, there, you know, it, there should be no coaching by anyone. There should, obviously, there should be no guidance it's really helping facilitate the uh, physical voting, active voting, whether it be through a ballot, et cetera. It is not guiding them into how they should make a choice. Um, Eric, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, uh, what you said is, is, uh, is, is correct. And of course, there's a, a, there can be a perceived fine line between um, assisting someone in voting and maybe pointing them in a direction. But uh, the point of voting assistance is to a provide the information about the vote itself, uh, telling when the dates and the deadlines are and b helping with the physical assistance uh, in as far as filling out the form, whether that's assisting with reading or, filling out the form itself. Um, one thing I'll add is that there are, there have been reports in past elections, or I should call them allegations of uh, fraud 
um, of a staff member perhaps coercing residents to vote in a certain direction. Um, there is not any um, widespread evidence or any evidence that this is happening in, happening in any sort of widespread or consistent uh, manner. There, uh, what we the evidence there is no widespread evidence of voter fraud in this kind of situation. Um, Sarah, I know there were a couple others regarding voting, so why don't we take those? So if a resident has a guardian but still retains the right to vote as determined by the court, who's responsible to help the resident vote, the facility or the guardian? Well, everyone is responsible. So, so everyone should be taking, any, anyone who has the ability to do so should be taking action to, to support the resident. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, would, that would be my, my answer. And no, that don't would be pass the, it up to someone else. Yeah. That would be the same for if they had no access to computers. Same. Correct. Yeah. There, there, there's other ways in which they can, uh, in which their voting can be facilitated. Okay. Um, so the next subject is about seeing physicians not in the facility. So we hear from residents all the time that are not being permitted to see their own physicians. Insurance and payment become issues as well as transportation. Is it correct that even if the resident sees his own physician, the facility is not bound to follow that physician's recommendations? Well, uh, I think that, that um, um, Pat's question is, is really a good one. I mean, one, one there are, as I, as I mentioned when I was speaking about it, that so many people are not even aware that residents have this right. And so, it, which makes clear to me that that right is often not implemented in the lives of residents. Uh, so I think this is very challenging. Um, but if a resident's physician um, provides, you know, direction uh, for residents' needs, whether it be medication, whether it be, um, you know, other clinical services, um, et cetera, then the facility is absolutely obliged to follow through with the, with the physician's um, directions. But I do recognize, uh, as I think Pat is um, trying to say here, that it, it, this is very challenging that we see facilities put up roadblocks by saying that they're not going to provide transportation. And now under COVID, you know, I'm hearing from families saying you know, that, that the resident can't get out to go to, uh, to appointments, uh, that there, some facilities are making it even harder. But the, um, you know, it, it's not a prison. And um, you know, residents have the right to again, you know, see a physician. Yes, you know, it can be someone that the facility uh, you know, has deemed as visiting privilege, et cetera. But as I mentioned when I was talking about it, the facility can put up you know significant roadblocks so that only their own doctor is um, is the one that is able to provide um, physician um, services if if a resident wants to go someplace else. I think, I think two more questions, Sarah. Oh, <laughs> if there's two more, there are many more than two more. Okay. Um, so please focus on the rights that have been stripped from nursing home residents. Talking about voting is one thing, but even more fundamental, our rights have been the rights have been stripped. How about those with dementia who are not who are being isolated and have no voice? Please talk about the criminal activity of immunity that's stripping residents' rights. Thanks. Well, we'll talk about the, you know, we, we talked about some of the rights and we'll certainly talk about others. So thank you for, for that comment, 
Uh, so are there any questions? Of course, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, That's okay. Um, um, is a facility obligated to provide transportation to an outside doctor? Is a facility obligated to implement prescriptions from an outside doctor? I think you answered that one also. I yeah, the facility should be, and, and, and you can see in, in the rules, which again, which makes them so useful to, for advocacy, is that the facility has to facilitate um, those things. And, uh, you know, sometimes you do need, and that's why I, I've said a couple of times that like we can't provide legal advice and we, we're not able to provide individual, um, you know, guidance. Um, but I think that those are things that I would certainly advocate for and that those are things that the facility should be taking steps to do. And if there's things that are making that impossible for the facility to do, then the facility should be explaining uh, why it can't, uh, you know, for, for anything and particularly here and coming up with, you know, some reasonable alternatives. I think that that's all your questions. Great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah, for, um, for asking the questions. Eric, uh, great presentation, I thought. And um, oh. uh, it was very, very helpful, always, in, always informative. Again, please, um, this is not a partisan issue at all. We wanna make sure that uh, obviously that residents are cared for, that they can have visitation as, as you know, we share what, what many of you have told us about your concerns and have for many, many months as I know you have as well. Um, here today, we focused uh, a lot on voting because now is the time to really move on that. And the resources that, that Eric had posted are really good. They are on our website now. That page is live. Very easy to find and to utilize and to share. So thank you, everyone. Hope to see you in October. Have a good afternoon. Bye.